Welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First up, we're going to get a preview of what it means to be American, an event that will explore Hawaii's sense of identity. Jennifer Sabas, director of the Daniel K. Inouye Institute Foundation, as well as Senator Joe Tukuda, will tell us all about it. And, of course, then we'll talk to Rob Hoff. Of the, uh, he's with the State Department of Forestry wild, and Wildlife, and he uh, works on efforts to understand the battle against a devastating plague called Rapid Ohia Death. Of course, though, we want to start by welcoming Jennifer and Jill from uh, the upcoming event to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you know, I, um, I heard about this show from kind of an email invite from uh, Zocalo, right? Is that pr- the right pronunciation or Zocalo? And, and they are uh, putting on this, this sort of uh, workshop. It's actually in con- uh, conjunction with the Smithsonian. Now, Jill, you were telling me that this is actually a series that has been going on for a little while. Correct. So this is actually the third event that they've done here in Hawaii mm-hmm. um, over the past three years. And it is a partnership with the Daniel K. Inouye Institute, the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and um, Zocalo. Mm-hmm. And it is about bringing important conversations here to Hawaii um, and bringing panelists, uh, many of them mostly local, um, Kama'aina, here to have conversations uh, that really bring to the forefront um, current events. So we first started out three years ago with what America, Hawaii can teach America about race, and now we're talking about identity, uh, almost like the Hawaii gene, if you will, mm-hmm. and having that discussion about um, we're very unique uh, in this state in terms of our identity and what can we now um, teach the rest of the country in terms mm-hmm. of that issue of identity. Right. Now, and Jen- Honolulu yeah. is one of about a dozen states, and it, it's part of the senator's legacy to make sure that Hawaii is included in these national conversations. And so each of these other cities put on similar types of conversations that are very specific to them, hmm. right? So very local to who we are, but, you know, as American as any other city in the United States. So it's pretty exciting. And clips from all of these conversations are live at the Smithsonian in Washington. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So over the years that the other, uh, I guess, events have occurred, they've been collecting them and actually putting them up on uh, a display at the Smithsonian. Correct. So from from uh, Jennifer, your standpoint, uh, how has this been received? I mean, what, is there a is there an impact that is being made as a result of these uh, these conversations? I I mean, I would like to think so. One, you know, part of Senator's big hope was always to ensure that Hawaii was not left out of bigger conversations because of our distance, right, from Mm -hmm. from our nation's capital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he kind of personified that connection. And so with his passing, right, one of our initiatives is to make sure that we never get left out to the extent that we can. And so these conversations appear, right, in the Smithsonian next to Los Angeles, you know, and um, and North Carolina and, and, and other cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and we're not well. just an island in the Pacific, yes. for example. Yes. So, Jill, you uh, talked. Uh, you were helped put together the panel for this event, and I liked the description that it was going to discuss uh, Hawaii's fierce sense of exceptionalism. And I think you know we saw some of we see that a lot. And the story you tell is that people from Hawaii, when they meet somewhere else outside of Hawaii, they 
share a bond and kind of cling together in a way that is almost unique, I think, to our place. So what are some of the other, who are some of the other voices that are going to be participating in this specific conversation? Absolutely. Well, I think we always try to make sure that when we have these events, it's exciting and we bring together a unique group of people that are really going to get people excited about having um, a conversation that evening and then keep that conversation going once they leave. So it's going to be moderated by Lee Cataluna, who everyone knows. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a great time when she's uh, in the room. We're also going to have Lawrence Downs. Now, that may not be as familiar to some people, but he is actually a journalist and member of the editorial board for the New York Times. Hmm. So talk about local boy done good and representing us 5,000 miles away across the country. He is going to be coming home and part of our panel. We're going to have Augie T., um, who not only makes us laugh here at home, but across the country and oftentimes uses local um, characterizations of ethnicity. So hmm. talking about identity and talking about culture, um, he is going to be on the panel as well. But he's also uh, worked across the country, right? Uh, Jennifer and I have mm-hmm. talked to him about his unique perspectives. And we are going to have um, Kurt Osaki as well. And he lives both here and in California. Mm-hmm. In San Jose. Mm-hmm. And his claim to fame, of course, is, right, he did the logos for the NFL. And, of course, he did the, the logo for the UH hmm. um, um, Warriors. And what makes him interesting, he's a Kauai boy, very successful in his own right, right, um, in San Jose. Um, and when he was homesick, um, right, made the decision to open the first hukila restaurant in San Jose. So they would be able to eat local food, right, until he was able, right, to come home more often. Mm-hmm. So each of them kind of have a perspective that I think will be interesting. Now, I know this is, uh, um, you know, we normally talk tech on this show. And I'm curious. Do you sense any impact that sort of social media and the technology and the sort of just the connectivity that the Internet has provided, has that impacted how we perceive ourselves as Americans in Hawaii as as well as how we project ourselves as a unique, um, let's say, cultural identity, especially with Hokulea having gone ac- around the world, right? I mean, so what what sort of is your take on that, the impact of this technology? So I think just by the... Um you know, just as an example, right, we have issued no traditional press yet on the event, right? Mm-hmm. It's gone all online. It's all digital. Um, and we are what, almost halfway to, um, to the RSVPs yeah. for oh, the great, event. Great. Right? So, so this is our first traditional type of media um, well, that's pitch for the event. <laughs> <laughs> We've um, actually been called traditional. Wow. wow. But I think it allows um, conversations to just, you know, go viral. Good, um, good. And also, if you think about it, technology has really helped us to connect in ways that we really could not connect in before. Mm-hmm. In, in, in especially when Hawaii people go away now, they can connect via social media. Facebook is a very powerful medium. Instagram, Twitter. Before, in the past, perhaps email, but now they can see pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, they can um, actually connect quickly. So they're able to not feel so away from home when they're away from home. Now, when the th- the theme is what it means to be American, mm-hmm. I have to imagine part of the conversation I can see Lee Cataluna and Agiti talking about this is 
there's a fine line between you know appreciating a culture and appropriating it. We had these debates over Moana. Mm-hmm. We have these debates mm-hmm. even today, or even with Fourth of July and its complicated history for mm-hmm. Hawaii. Yeah. So, do you anticipate some of those conversations or some of those topics to come up as part of this program? I think what's fascinating for the Smithsonian, right? And our goal is always to kind of unnerve them on something, um, something <laughs> that we do. What fascinated them about this topic is if you ask the average Hawaii person, they will say that they are from Hawaii before they're. They say they're an American, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And there's that kind of, um, not that right, we belittle right, the nation that we love, but it's that identity that fascinates them, right? That we like, connect to ourselves first as a state more than any other state in the nation. Jill, I know you have something on your mind you want to share. No, it's, it's just that I think that's something that the Smithsonian has really appreciated about this partnership, is that if you take a look at all the other cities that they've gone to and had these types of panel discussions um, and programs, they've been able to push the envelope, especially more here in Hawaii, because we're not afraid to have the conversations that may be a little bit controversial but need to happen now. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in this time in, in, in our history when <clears> – <throat> There are challenges, but we have to start having these discussions one-on-one with each other. Hawaii is that place where we're not afraid to confront, um, you know, tough issues. We're not afraid to disagree with one another. This is the kind of conversation about identity, um, about acceptance, about uniqueness, um, looking at ourselves in the mirror. That's why they appreciate these kinds of partnerships, and I think that's important. As you remember, three years ago, we started with the issue about race, at a time in our country's history where it was not popular or easy to talk about race, mm-hmm. we're coming back full circle now in the third and final uh, lecture talking about identity. Mm-hmm. And again, in a time and point in our country's history when it is a difficult discussion, but one that is so important to have. And I think that's why we really thought about our panel members. Who would make it a good discussion mm. And a fun one. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a, a very interesting conversation. But as you mentioned, it's limited in terms of seating and availability. So if somebody <laughs> wanted to reserve a spot to be there at what it means to be an American, a national conversation, uh, where can they go for more information? So they can go to what it means to be American dot org and they can RSVP um, and please sign up. It's going to be a great evening. By the way, we also have heavy poopoos. So heavy I assure you, it's provided by the um, Waipahu High School Culinary yes. Student. Oh, oh nice. great. Right. Uh, so, so that's a, a menu, right? Co- comfort mm-hmm. food with a twist. Mm-hmm. And this will be on Tuesday, July 25th. It'll be at 6.30 p.m. in the evening. But again, what it means to be American.org. And it'll be over at the Artistry in uh, Kaka'ako. And we want to thank you both, Jennifer and Jill, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hope to see you on the 25th. For sure. Of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by jo- uh, Ro- <laughs> Rob Hoff. And he's with the... Department of Forestry and Wildlife, and we'll talk about rapid ohia death. Don't go away. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Urgent Care Hawaii. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio every morning when I'm driving to work. It it energizes me for the day, and it gives me that information that I need to be effective. It informs my day, and uh, I really relish that time in the car, as crazy as that may sound, to actually uh, be educated on what's going on in the world. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. 
Welcome back to Bike Mart Cafe. Now joining us is Rob Hoff, and he's with the Department of Forestry and Wildlife. He's the Forest Health Coordinator. And we want to learn what's the latest in this fight against this devastating disease. What is the current status? Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, we've heard a lot about uh, rapid Ohia death, but I guess just as a, let's say, just a baseline, can you give us uh, maybe some, you know, basic understanding of how it started and to what extent is this devastation really impacting Ohia forest on the Big Island? Sure. So this originally started probably about 2010 when Mm -hmm. residents in the Puna district of Hawaii Island started noticing their trees dying um, mysteriously, very rapidly dying. And um, they reported it to the state, to the university. And at first we weren't too alarmed because uh, the species does frequently see, you know, small scale diebacks. Um, there, there are multiple things out there that can kill ohia, so we weren't really alarmed. Until about 2012, 2013, we started seeing the areas grow in size, and we started mapping the and areas surveying. areas of, of, of sort of, of the death growing. Yes, yeah. of the death, of the mortality. And that really started to raise concern because it didn't really look like the things we'd seen before. Mm-hmm. And so we did start um, th- working with University of Hawaii and the U.S. Forest Service monitoring what was going on. But it wasn't until 2014 until they actually uh, isolated the fungus that was causing it Mm. and then were able to prove that that fungus was, in fact, what was killing those trees. And that actually, um, you know, relative to other diebacks that have occurred across the globe, happened very rapidly. Um, And we were very fortunate that we were able to find out quickly. A lot of people... you know, kind of give us a hard time. Well, the trees were dying back in 2010, and you guys weren't able to figure it out. But to figure it out by 2014 is actually quite rapid. So this fungus that you've isolated, what was it um, about this fungus that would actually kill the ohia? Okay, the um, the fungus gets into the trees through some sort of wound, and it starts to colonize the vascular system, and it chokes off the the um, water that goes into the crown mm-hmm. that the tree needs to uh, uh, transpire, and that's uh, that usually happens um, very rapidly, causing the tree crown to die all at once. So it takes about a year or two once the tree's been infected for the fungus to actually choke it off. But once it does choke it off, it happens very rapidly. And Mm -hmm. that's why we gave it the name Rapid Ohia Death. I was actually going to wonder why it wasn't named after the person who discovered it or the mechanism. (laughs) But it's basically the effect. And it was because at the time it had to be named, even though you didn't have an idea of what that mechanism was. Correct. We gave it that name because of what we were observing. Mm -hmm. But that was before we even knew what the biological um, factors were that were killing it. Is there a way to articulate the extent, though? I mean, um, certainly when I lived on the Big Island, we uh, cherish and love our ohia trees. And it's hard for me to wrap my brain around what, you know, how much of a a crisis this is. I mean, in terms of its extent, in terms of its coverage, in terms of its reach. Sure, sure. So our agency is doing aerial surveys twice a year. Uh, We fly with helicopters and we have tablet computers that we are able to sketch the areas of dieback that we see. And we can very rapidly get an estimation of how much of the forest is dying off from what we what we think is the pathogen. Of course, we can't be certain until we go in, in the ground and we do the laboratory tests to find out exactly what it was. But this this disease does have a, a, a certain look to it from uh, when you see it from the air. So mm-hmm. um, 
the latest surveys, which were conducted uh, just earlier this year, found 75,000 acres that look like had been killed by this disease. And previously, in about mid-2016, when we had done the same mapping, there was 50,000 acres. So in less than a year, we saw a 50% increase, which mm-hmm. um, which is pretty alarming. So um, how, many total, how many total acres would you say would be the population of Ohia? Oh, on the island of Hawaii, there are about 600,000 acres of Ohia. So that's a significant amount. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of that. That's not solid mortality. Um, of those acres, it might only be 10% mortality within the area that they mapped, but it goes all the way to 100%. So that's acres of areas that are impacted by the disease. Has there been any let's say, understanding of the source or where this uh, fungus has has come from? So that's a big mystery still. Um, People suspect that it probably came in on a a living plant um, of a different species and was able to jump hosts, that is, um, go from what the... uh, the host that it normally grows on to Metrosideros. This has never been found in Hawaii on Ohio. And we we did survey um, previously for other diebacks in the 70s and 80s, and they never found this pathogen. So that's why we know that it's new to Hawaii. Um, But you haven't identified the source. And it's possible that this this pathogen is different now than what it was when it arrived. Correct. You know, these pathogens mutate, they change, and they can jump hosts. So we do hope that through some of the genetic studies that are being conducted with our collaborators that we'll get a better idea of where it came from. It is closely related to a group of diseases that originate in the Caribbean and South America. So we think it's from that part of the planet, Um, but we don't have much more detail than that at this point. So in terms of, uh, you know, its impact on the Big Island, <clears throat> and it seems like it's, you know, getting quite a, a dispersal, uh, what's preventing it from actually getting to the neighbor islands like, like Maui and Oahu and, and Kauai? Sure, that's obviously a big concern. And uh, fortunately, the Department of Agriculture uh, reacted very quickly when uh, the disease was first discovered, and they uh, created a quarantine that um, is in place to the state, and it doesn't allow people to move Ohia products uh, or soil from the Big Island to the other islands because we know that the pathogen is in the wood. It's in Ohia plants that people might want to plant in their garden. Mm -hmm. And so if people were to move those items from the Big Island to the other islands, it could possibly spread it to those other islands. Um, So, so far, we still haven't had any detections, um, despite, you know, surveying thoroughly on the other islands. So uh, the quarantine that's in effect, the Department of Agriculture enforces, does seem to be working. Um, However, uh, it could potentially go between islands also uh, on the wind if we had a big storm that mm-hmm. came up. Um, that, that is a possibility. Um, at this point, we don't know whether that's happening or not, and we're definitely developing the tools, the scientific tools, to better detect it in the environment so we can say where it is and where it isn't. Is the primary objective at this point in terms of the focus of the resources and the priority uh, containment? I mean, it would sound that that, that's key versus something like trying to find some sort of control or way to to prevent it or, or even cure it. Sure, sure. It's really unlikely that there would be any sort of cure for the trees. So uh, I think before we can even really achieve containment, we really have to get a handle on where it is on the Big Island. Um, we have found... Uh, 
the disease in Ohia Forest as far north as Hamakua, but we haven't found it in Kohala. Um, we follow up on those aerial surveys by going in on the ground with crews and we sample um, all the trees in that area to find out how widespread it is in that area. Um, and then we evaluate the site for management. Can we somehow reduce the amount of disease in the environment by cutting those trees and covering them with tarps, for instance? So it's, uh, it's, it's a very complex issue, and we don't really have it all figured out now. But uh, I think the priority really is to know uh, in real time where it is so that we can come up with management prescript- prescriptions and try them out and mm-hmm. monitor them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking to uh, Rob Hoff, and he's the forest health coordinator over at the Department of Forestry and Wildlife. And we're talking about rapid OHIA death. And one of the things that was uh, recently announced, and this was at a press conference on the Big Island, and, and there are some kind of interesting technology that's being deployed uh, to, to help battle this. Uh, something called, it was a, like a lab in a, in a suitcase. Now, this idea of a lab in a suitcase, what does it help you, what does it enable you to do that you couldn't do before? Okay. The lab in the suitcase is a really great tool because what it allows us to do is take it to the forest Um, basically this laboratory with all the instruments you need to run the analysis to determine whether a tree has been infected by this pathogen. So it, um, uh, through the process of extracting the DNA from the sample and running it through the, the process, you can get a positive or a negative for this disease. And that allows the crews in the forest to know, okay, if there is a positive here, then we need to we need to um, scour this area, sample all these trees, and figure out just how extensive the infestation is, whereas previously they'd have to take it back to the laboratory and wait a couple of days. And that mm-hmm. would also involve transporting it possibly and you know, creating more risk there. Exactly. How many of these, these uh, labs in a suitcase are there? So, so far there are three, and uh, one is being used by a crew that goes out and does surveys. One's being used by the Department of Agriculture, which allows them to to better um, enforce their quarantine. They can they can uh, uh, test commodities going into island to make sure that they're clean. We're in the process of purchasing more so that the other islands can have one, so the crew's there can test their samples and not have to wait for several days while the sample goes to the Big Island. And our our lab uh, on the Big Island working with uh, um, USDA is really overwhelmed with all the samples that have been submitted. So this will take some of the workload off of Mm -hmm. them as well. And are you folks leveraging drones or a lot of aerial photography to get an estimate of the size of this uh, uh, you know, devastation. I mean, is that helping to get an idea as to the scope of the problem? Yeah, we're really fortunate that there are projects uh, actually located on the Big Island that use some of these technologies that could be really valuable in doing that monitoring, knowing where it is and where it isn't. And so um, we've been working with UH Hilo, who's using the what they call the unmanned aerial mm-hmm. systems, which mm-hmm. are basically drones. Mm-hmm. Um, those have some limitations. They always have to be in line of sight, so you can't just go do the entire Ohia forest at once. There's um, an airplane that we um, recently contracted out that's run by the Carnegie Institute, and that has uh, very, very um, cutting-edge technology that uses uh, spectroscopy, which basically is able to look at the chemistry uh, of the forest canopy and um, look for clues for um, symptoms of the disease. And so we're excited um, that those surveys were just flown this past month and to get the results of mm. those. And they had flown surveys back in 2016, so it'll give, it, give us a little bit of a comparison. Um, so time. a lot of exciting mm. things going on with technology. Can you talk for a minute about the impact of this uh, 
rapid ohia death? I mean, you mentioned earlier there are obviously export products, and that means that there's a business or an economic impact of rapid ohia death. But and there's certainly an environmental one in terms of a uh, species for of Hawaii. Um, what are some of the things that we're trying to save uh, through battling rapid ohia death? Sure. So there is a there are some economic um, uh, uh, values for ohia, uh, especially for construction poles, and so previously. Oh. Uh, people on the Big Island would export poles. Um, uh, a lot of people will, uh, in build, constructing their lanais, will use the ohia logs. They mm-hmm. are very attractive. Uh, now they cannot do that. We would like to come up with uh, treatments so that they can freely move them into island again, knowing they're not spreading the diseases. But I think beyond um, the the uses of the wood, the flowers, and the vegetation, it's really the the watershed values that ohia provides. Um, it makes up 80% of our native forest, and it provides the water that we rely on for drinking water, for mm-hmm. agriculture. Um, it's extremely crucial for, for our watershed health. Um, and in addition to that, the cultural ties with our, our host culture are very significant. Um, so the the values are you know, really astronomical when you think about uh, Ohia being uh, found throughout the state. You know, I think you, you know, you've... Um spoken quite a bit about the assessment of, you know, rapid ohia death and kind of getting a handle on the, you know, how far reaching the the fungus is getting. But I want to hear a little bit more about, uh, and you did sort of say a little bit about how you would perhaps treat a, a tree that's already affected, which is, you know, chopping it down and maybe covering it. But are there other things that could be done or is it pretty much a, a foregone conclusion that once a tree is infected, it's pretty much going to die and you just have to let it take its natural course. So what is the actual strategy? Is it to try to eliminate the fungus or just let it die off naturally? They are looking at uh, pesticides that could be used, especially prophylactically, mm-hmm. um, from preventing healthy trees. But clearly, we can't go out in the forest and treat all the trees. That just is completely infeasible. Because um, of just but, the extent and the uh, cost of it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, what we're trying to do for sites in the forest that have been infected is to limit the disease from getting out of the wood um, and c- containing it some somehow. So ideally what you would do is cut the tree down and take it to an incinerator. But in most places, that's too difficult to, to forest, get it out. Right? Yeah, and it'd be too costly. So um, what we've looked at is felling the trees and covering them with tarps so that the, the as the, the wood degrades and gets attacked by boring beetles, it doesn't get out into the mm. environment. Does the fungus continue to survive even on dead wood? Yes, it can. And, oh, that's, and that's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's terrible. Yeah, that makes it especially challenging. So in, in essence, I mean, the only way to really get rid of it off of dead wood is to burn that wood. Correct. So is there something that island residents can do to assist? I mean, apart from obviously supporting the good work that uh, your department is doing, obviously not transporting Ohia between islands, but uh, is there a citizen science component that can somehow contribute to your efforts? Yeah, there's a lot of outreach efforts going out on Hawaii Island to get the community involved. And uh getting people to bring in samples to the lab if they have a ohia tree that's died is very helpful. But I think really making people conscientious about when they go into the forest and go 
leave and go to another forest to make sure that they've cleaned their boots, cleaned their truck, um, and to be thinking about how they might be accidentally spreading the disease without even thinking about it. I think that's really probably the most crucial message that we're trying to give to folks. What can you say in the last, uh, let's say, few seconds of the show? Are we winning this battle or how, how are we doing in this battle? I think we're making strides into figuring out how we can deal with this in the future, but it's never going to be something that we come up with a silver bullet that will cure the forest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds almost as much of a challenge as, for example, containing koki frogs at this point, but hopefully... Perhaps uh, more difficult. <laughs> oh, my. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where can someone go to learn more information about rapid ohia death and, and the progress you're making? Uh, the website is www.ohiadeath.org, excuse me, and there's lots of information for the public there. Fantastic. Are you are you sub, I guess uh, substantially funded? I mean, is that is that still a challenge or not? Um, it's a challenge, but we've been successful just because of the importance of Ohia to our forests. Well, very good. Well, Rob Hoff is the Forest Health Coordinator over at the Department of Forestry and Wildlife. I want to thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about learning to code and teaching teachers to code with Altino. And of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, from the HPR mobile app. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.